Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking some rosé. What about you? I am drinking a Mai Tai, and on this week's case, we're going to be looking at Dr. Thomas Hicks and his clinic. The Hicks Clinic performed illegal abortions and was a front-free illegal adoption ring that wasn't discovered until one of the children looked into her ancestry. Dr. Thomas Hicks was born on October 18, 1888 in McKaysville, Georgia. Not much is known about his early life or upbringing. What is known is that he was married to Chase Copland Hicks and together they had three children. He graduated from Tacoma College, Carson Newman College, and Emory University Medical School. After getting his medical degree from Emory University in Atlanta in 1917, he moved to Copper Hill, Tennessee, but lost his medical license for the first time and served time in a federal prison for selling narcotic painkillers to a veteran working undercover for the FBI. While incarcerated, he studied a lung disease that kept copper miners from living past the age of 40. Once out, he was hired by the Tennessee Copper Company to treat miners. The only problem was he filed more claims than there was miners with the disease. He opened the Hicks Community Clinic in 1945 and ran it until his retirement in 1965. The Hicks Community Clinic was located in the small mining town of McKaysville, Georgia, and it provided health care services for the townspeople. Dr. Hicks was well-liked by the community, and they trusted him. One woman said, quote, He was a very generous person. He and Mrs. Hicks were so kind to so many people. I never knew anyone so generous. He did a lot for this town, end quote. In the early 1950s, at a time before Roe v. Wade, Dr. Hicks performed illegal abortions. He would advertise his services in newspapers, bus stations, and bridges. He also found a way to profit off of his patients through the selling of their infants. He had various ways to obtain the babies in question. For some, he would convince them to carry the baby to term, and for others, he would lie and say that they had had a stillbirth. No matter the way, he would fake a birth certificate and sell the baby for around $800 to $1,000. Many adoptions involved families in the Akron, Ohio area. Dr. Hicks told the adopted parents to come to the back door of the clinic, take the baby, and then leave. Hicks kept no records tying the newborns to their birth parents. There is no evidence that the birth parents and adoptive parents ever interacted with each other. It is estimated that he sold over 200 babies and netted close to $2 million in today's money. Some believe the local police either were involved in the illegal adoptions or looked the other way. The illegal adoption stopped in 1964 when Hicks was arrested for performing illegal abortions. In order to escape prosecution, he willingly gave up his medical license. Dr. Hicks died in 1972 due to leukemia. This would have been the end of the story if it wasn't for DNA technology. Again, it is estimated that there are nearly 200 Hicks babies, and in 1997, they began to uncover the truth of what happened. The first person to start to unravel this backstory was a woman named Jane Blasio. Jane learned from her father that he and Blasio's mother had brought her from a clinic in Georgia. 
Blasio knew she was adopted, but assumed it was a legal adoption until her father told her otherwise. By 2014, 30 suspected Hicks babies traveled to Tennessee to undergo DNA testing with the help of Ancestry.com. Blasio continues to assist Hicks babies and their families in the search for answers from her home base in Akron, Ohio. This is an eye-opening case that is connected to so many different modern concepts. These include abortion, reproductive rights, including the access to contraceptives, and the black market. We're going to start this episode's discussion by taking a deep dive into abortion. Before we do, we're going to lay out our own personal views on it, starting with Jenny. I fully support abortion. In a perfect world, we wouldn't need to have abortions, but that's unfortunately not our reality. And I think denying a woman that right is another way to oppress women and essentially deny them a form of health care and family planning, because that really is all abortion is. Banning abortion or restricting access doesn't make abortions go away. It just makes safe abortions go away. And to me, life does not begin at conception, which I know is an argument for some pro-life, anti-choice supporters, whatever you want to call them. People often overlook the reasons why someone gets an abortion and everyone has different reasoning. And I think that there's a lot of nasty myths and fear-mongering around abortion that I just frankly wish would go away. It's not a decision someone makes lightly, and it may not be a decision I would personally make, but I don't support taking that right away or shaming someone for getting an abortion. I think we might have uh, differing opinions, Dale. So yeah, I definitely think we have differing opinions on this one. For me, abortion is a tricky topic because it touches on the most basic questions. Who has the right to live, and when does that right start? I believe that everyone has the right to live and that right starts with the formation of a new person at conception and doesn't end until the natural succession of life. While I agree that everyone has the right to determine what happens with their own body, abortion creates the situation of what happens if the choices you make with your own body leads to the demise of someone else. Life is precious and abortion doesn't allow that preciousness to become a reality. I think abortion is a hard choice to find yourself on the fence about because it speaks to the heart of your values. For me, there are similar reasons why I oppose the death penalty. It is fundamental to my value system that life be protected in all of its forms, from the preborn baby to those who choose to destroy the fabric of society with their evilness. So now that we've laid out our own views, let's take a look at what led people to seek out Dr. Hicks's abortion services. Before 1857, most states didn't have any laws in the books actually regulating abortion, but the American Medical Association started to argue in favor of restrictive abortion laws. So they had several reasons. They took the moral position that taking a life is wrong. They took a medical position that a preborn baby is a person. And they also took this weird practical position that since midwives were more likely to perform abortions, they were taking patients away from doctors. And they were successful in this effort, so by 1880, abortion was illegal throughout the United States. But of course, we know that that is not the case now, and a chain of cases set the stage for Roe v. Wade. The first one was Griswold v. Connecticut that stated that married couples had the right to use contraceptives. The next one was Esselstad v. Bard 
that stated that any person had the right to use contraceptives. And the final case was Cary Population Services International. And that decision stated that a state could not intrude on a person's right to make decisions around procreation. And then came Roe versus Wade, which is a Supreme Court ruling that struck down a Texas law against abortion. The case started with Norma McCorvey, who was pregnant with her third child. She wanted to obtain an abortion, but couldn't due to the Texas law. Her friend advised her to claim that she was raped, but Texas had no rape exception in their anti-abortion law. The illegal abortion clinic she wanted to use had been shut down as well. She was then referred to lawyers who would sue over the constitutionality of the Texas law. In the suit, she was named as Jane Rowe, and the case was brought against Dallas County District Attorney Henry Wade in his official capacity to represent Texas. Their ruling stated that during the first trimester, governments could not prohibit abortions at all. During the second trimester, governments could require reasonable health regulations, and during the third trimester, abortions could be prohibited entirely so long as the laws contained exceptions for cases when they were necessary to save the life or health of the mother. It also places any laws challenging abortion rights under strict scrutiny, which is the highest level of judicial review. It holds that the law or policy can be constitutionally valid if the government can demonstrate in court that the law or regulation is necessary to achieve a, quote, compelling state interest. The government must also demonstrate that the law is narrowly tailored to achieve the compelling purpose and uses the least restrictive means to achieve the purpose. And contrary to popular discourse, Roe v. Wade isn't the law of the land anymore. So that distinction is definitely vested in the Casey versus Planned Parenthood decision. That decision upheld the constitutional right for a woman to have an abortion based on the due process clause of the 14th Amendment prior to viability. The court did, however, overturn the Roe trimester framework in favor of a viability analysis, thereby allowing states to implement abortion restrictions that apply during the first trimester of pregnancy. It also replaces the strict scrutiny standard with the undue burden clause. This allows states to restrict abortions as long as the restriction doesn't place an undue burden on the woman. And examples of restrictions that have been placed by states include having wait times, uh, requiring parental or spousal notification and or consent, having abortion clinics meet surgery center building requirements, and requiring people who are going to obtain abortion services attend ultrasound and other informational sessions. While abortion is a very important topic in and of itself, I think it's important that we look at the different parts of the U.S. culture that leads to varying views on reproductive rights. The first is purity culture. Purity culture is a term often used with the evangelical movement that attempts to promote a biblical view of purity by discouraging dating and promoting virginity before marriage. They often use tools such as purity pledges and symbols such as purity rings and events such as purity balls. There's really no medical definition for like virginity or purity. You're, I'm sure people have heard like virginity is a construct and that's really all it is. It's just a social construct that um, movements like this really 
kind of perpetuate. So we see that purity is like the best thing you can have. If you're pure, if you've never had sex, you are worth more than someone else that has. And we see this, I would say more so being put on women instead of men. What do you think? So I definitely agree. It's the thing of the boys getting the attaboys when they get a girl and the girls getting slut shamed because they had a boyfriend. I feel like it's more you're cool if you're a guy, but it's like so much pressure if you're a girl and like everything has to be right and you have to, you're probably not going to like it, which I feel like is like an issue in and of itself as well. And with that, you can actually trace this purity culture back to the 1960s era sexual revolution and when those people began to have children of their own. And just to give you some context of why they felt that purity was important, it was one, AIDS had become the number one killer for men aged 25 to 44 in the United States. Teen pregnancy rates had reached an all-time high, and the number of premarital sex partners had also substantially increased since the 1970s. So I don't think their motives were wrong. Those three things are enough to say, okay, we definitely need to make a change. But I do think that went way too far with it. I agree. Sex is an unavoidable part of most people's lives. So I understand why people would think, okay, like just don't have it. Here's all like the amazing reasons not to have it. I understand why they think that would work, but in reality, it just doesn't. And like Del said, good intentions, uh, not the best execution. Right. And studies bear this out. So one study that was published in 2009 actually found that the sexual behaviors of teens who had taken the purity pledge doesn't differ from that of closely matched non-pleasures. And actually something really interesting that the study found was that five years after taking the pledge, 82% of the pleasures denied ever having pledged, which I found so fascinating. It's one of those things like, no, I don't remember that. That was embarrassing. Please don't bring that up. That's so weird. And I feel like it kind of goes in with the whole like, you're cool if you're having sex to it being like, you're not cool if you're doing a virginity pledge, which it shouldn't be like a cultural standard that you're like lame if you're doing that. Everyone should make their own decisions. Yes, I definitely agree. I find that peer pressure plays a very big role in the decisions that people make. And I think that people should have the courage of their convictions to stand by whatever choice they want to make, whether that is engaging in premarital sex or remaining a virgin until marriage. I think it's your choice, and I don't think you should be shamed either way. And I think that as Jenny was talking about, there is this virginity fetishization and it is something that is still very strong in the united states culture and really the western culture it's really gross (laughs) i feel like that's the best word to sum it up really we see women and girls auctioning off their virginity to make money which i mean i'm not gonna shame someone for the way they make money but i don't know it makes me sad knowing We see in porn that a really popular category is like the virgin, first time, barely legal, like all that kind of. We see this in how many movies and TV shows. It's such a common trope. The main character is like on a quest to lose their virginity. I can think of like American Pie, the to-do list. I'm sure there's many more. 
And then something kind of strange, um, like a paradox almost, is virgins as sex symbols. So Jessica Simpson was very outspoken about how she wanted to save herself for marriage. And a lot of people knew that she would get asked questions about that a lot in the media um, before she was married. And in her book, which I've mentioned before, go out and read it. It's really good. She mentions how the song she was singing it wasn't songs she had written were making it sound like, you know, she just, she loved having sex. She was a sexual being, even though she had never had sex and kind of the same thing with Britney Spears. She also said she was going to um, save herself until marriage, but she was, you know, dancing in a very sexy way, singing like sexually suggestive lyrics. So it's really interesting. I guess that it again goes into the virginity and purity being really desirable, but desirable in a sexual way. Okay, you also find this in a lot of lollicon type things within the anime realm where they are putting an emphasis on the innocence and the young looks of the subject. Yeah, just another way that youth, I guess, is like, monetized and sexualized and how often women are infantilized and purity culture has led to a regression in sex education in schools advocates of purity culture argue that exposure leads to increased rates of activity but all the studies show that that's not the case and sex ed in school can be broken down into two clusters one is abstinence only and the other is comprehensive sex education Abstinence-only education is also known as sexual risk avoidance programs, and it teaches that avoiding sex is the only morally acceptable option for youth and that it is the only safe and effective way to prevent unintended pregnancy and STDs. In these courses, you generally do not discuss contraceptive methods or condoms unless you want to emphasize their failure rates. So it's a thing of, hey, no, don't use condoms, don't use any contraceptives, they fail, just don't have sex. This type of curriculum is taught in numerous states, including Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and Wisconsin. Many of these states have high STI rates and several also have high rates of teen pregnancy. I've never heard them called sexual risk avoidance programs. That's really interesting. I would think the bigger sexual risk is maybe getting an STI or getting pregnant, but who knows? And again, that emphasis on it being a moral thing, that's really gross. And it also perpetuates that idea that if you're pure, you're worth more than someone else who is having sex and I guess fulfilling a human urge that of course like the most safe and effective way to not get pregnant or an STI is to abstain but again not necessarily most like realistic thing probably not setting people up for healthy futures. It's absolutely not and in the middle you have this program known as abstinence plus that includes uh, information about contraceptives and condoms, but they still stress that abstinence is the best way to prevent pregnancy and STIs. And the last really big cluster of sex ed is comprehensive sex education. And these programs include medically accurate evidence-based information about both contraceptives 
and abstinence, as well as condoms to prevent STI transmissions. They emphasize safe sex practices and often include information about healthy relationships and lifestyles. And one study found that youth who received information about contraceptives in their sex education programs were actually at 50% lower risk of teen pregnancy than those in abstinence-only programs. And sexuality education in or out of schools does not increase sexual activity, sexual risk-taking behavior, or STI and HIV infection rates. Do you remember what you had in high school, Dell, or middle school? So in both middle school and high school, I had comprehensive sex education, but I am a child of the 90s, so I don't remember them really speaking about LGBTQ um, lifestyles within that class. I'm pretty sure it was a heteronormative sex education class. That's what I think I got to. I really don't remember very much. Um, It's not even, it's almost 10 years since I graduated high school. So crazy to me. Um, I'm sure not very crazy to other people. Um, But I don't really remember what we had. I do remember learning about STIs and we like went to the library and researched different STIs. I feel like we also did something on fetishes, which like, why were we learning about that in school? No shade to, you know, anyone that has a fetish, but maybe not what we were really needing to be learning about. So you kept hearing us saying contraceptives throughout this episode, and that's because access to contraceptives are so important. Currently, 49% of pregnancies are unintended. Government expenses from unintended pregnancies are approximately $12.5 billion. That's crazy. It's hard to believe that half the pregnancies basically are unintended. What the hell? Right. And I think that one of the things is I'm not going to shame anyone for an unattended pregnancy. Definitely not. I just think that, you know, having contraceptives are very important to make sure that that number comes down so that people can actively engage with family planning. So unfortunately, not everyone has access to contraceptives. Right now, insurance plan restrictions prevent 73% of women from receiving more than one single month supply of their contraceptives at a time. And they create a situation where most women are unable to obtain contraceptive refills in a timely manner. I don't understand what the point of that really is. Like I've heard of, there was a whole Hobby Lobby thing in the United States a few years ago with how they were like a Christian company and giving their workers birth control in their health insurance didn't align with their values. But what's the point of like giving it out sparingly? That's like more evil in my opinion. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's so weird. When I read that, I was like, that can't be true. And then I looked and got a secondary source and I'm like, oh, wow, 73%. That seems like a lot. And they didn't really give a good explanation on why that was. And I think that the fact that it's tied into the fact that it's hard for you to have to go and physically get that refill It just makes the case stronger for non-monthly forms of birth control, which include an IUD, includes the depot shot, and different patches and rings that you can use. I wonder, too, if it just has anything to do with, like, the terrible state of health insurance in the U.S. So now let's lighten up this discussion by talking about the services besides abortion that Dr. Hicks was offering. His type of adoption was connected to what is known as the black market. And the black market can simply be defined as economic activity that takes place outside of government-sanctioned channels. 
and black market transactions usually occur under the table to let participants avoid government price controls and taxes. But um, let's get into some specifics about the different types of black markets. So I think the most well-known one is drugs. And while law enforcement agencies intercept a fraction of illegal drugs and incarcerate hundreds of thousands of wholesale and resale sellers, there is a very stable demand for drugs and high profit margins. And it is estimated by the United Nations that the retail market value of illegal drugs it's $321.6 billion. Can't even picture $1 billion, let alone $321 billion. Let's get into black market adoptions. This term can refer to adoptions that do not conform to established state and federal laws that regulate adoptions. Formal adoption and options like in vitro fertilization can be very expensive and inaccessible to a lot of people. I think that many... Um, organizations are working to make adoption more affordable. I've heard of sliding scale adoption, but it is um, very unattainable for a lot of people. So it kind of makes sense that people would want to turn to the black market to obtain a child. For so many people, I know that their heart is broken when they find out that they can't have children. And Yeah. And unfortunately, because it's illegal, all the participants that were involved in the adoption may be subject to criminal prosecution and there's a possibility that the child will be taken away from the involved adoptive parents and placed for adoption with another set of parents. A lot of victims, people don't realize that. Dr. Hicks's clinic and his black market adoption ring happened in the 1950s, but Stuff like this is still going on in modern times. There was a former Arizona politician who was sentenced very recently to begin serving a term for running an illegal adoption scheme that paid pregnant women from the Marshall Islands to come to the U.S. to give up their babies. He was sentenced to six years after pleading guilty in federal court in Arkansas for some reason. He was sentenced to six years after pleading guilty in federal court to conspiring to commit human smuggling. He was acknowledged as running the adoption scheme. Prosecutors said that he illegally paid women from the Pacific Island Nation to give up their babies in at least 70 adoption cases in Arizona, Utah, and Arkansas. Marshall Island citizens have been prohibited from traveling to the U.S. for adoption purposes since 2003. So pretty crazy, high up people involved in this. And again, it just goes to show the lengths people will go to obtain a child and to get rid of a child. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the Hicks Clinic. Make sure you click the subscribe button. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform and YouTube every Wednesday with a new episode. Follow us on Instagram at Crime Corruption Cocktails and on Twitter at Charade Inc. Please consider donating to our Patreon. This will help us to get better equipment and bring higher quality content to you. We appreciate any amount you can give. This is Jenny and Del signing off. Stay safe.